Last week in the markets, the yellow metal flew to the highest point in about six years on expectations of lower U.S. rates. Well, welcome back to GoldSeek.com Radio, everyone. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just a pleasure to be with you. Season 14, Episode 702. Well, the precious metals shares also flew into orbit this week while U.S. equities took a break. And joining me with their thoughts on just what's going on here, Bill Murphy, the former NFL player and head of Gata.org, returns to the show with new insights on the precious metals shares rally. He's expecting a liftoff to 2000 plus in the coming years as the gold cartel, he says, runs out of physical bullion to contain the market price. We agree that the AG market, or silver, might just be the most undervalued commodity in the world today. Case in point, take a look at palladium, which flew several fold higher in the blink of an eye, the tiny market, mostly an industrial metal for the auto sector. Silver, on the other hand, the most important technological metal in the world, at least precious metal, and is selling at under the cost of production at most mines. What an incredible bargain. Just if it plays catch-up to gold, the gold-to-silver ratio is close to 90 right now. One of the most out-of-whack, you might say, in history. Could you imagine just returning to 30 to 1, which would be still way above the natural rate in the ground is approximately 1 to 12 or 1 to 15. So even at 1 to 30, silver would have to reprice threefold from the current levels. That gives it a real valuation of 45 to 50 before any fireworks or leverage or anything else are brought into the equation, including inflation. And that's what investors seem to be catching a whiff of here. With the Federal Reserve now clearly going to cut rates, according to the CME Fed Funds futures, as soon as one month from essentially this weekend, That would be the July 31st FOMC meeting. We're seeing very strong odds of a quarter rate point cut on the way and maybe another as soon as October. Then Wolf Richter, founder of WallStreet.com, a listener favorite, shares his analysis. He advises investors to buy and hold precious metals. He likes it as an insurance, as do we to protect that portfolio beta, he outlines his graphical analysis of the major cities and their Case-Shiller housing indexes. He finds many safer areas. They have had a more steady growth pattern, but he also outlines some key cities that are a bit frothy. We also created a slideshow for you that includes all of the charts we discuss, plus additional charts from another article. So you can uh, tune right in in about every five to seven seconds. A new chart will pop up and you can listen to the podcast at the same time. A visual experience we're now providing for our favorite interviews. One of my pet projects, the Ancient Artifacts Preservation Society, APPS, we had another series of breakthroughs this week. Evidence we think is rather compelling of... An advanced civilization, as I've mentioned here for quite some time, in North America, 3,300 years ago, this civilization flourished here and had contact with the the Egyptian society because the individual that we found who is clearly representing what appears to be a Caucasian has an Egyptian-style headdress, a true dynastic period headdress with the false beard. He appears to age given the lighting of the surrounding area. So for instance, we think the advanced civilization that encoded this and carved this from a child-looking pharaoh to a middle-aged, rather formidable character just by the way in which it was encoded. Of course, that's all conjecture. Also, another stunning find that we hope to put up tonight after this show, one of the advanced civilizations was clearly reptilian, also a flourishing civilization on the Red Planet because we have found very similar themes between the two that this civilization may have originally developed here on Earth. A tiny eight inch high, it is, we think, plausible that they may have survived the Jurassic and or other difficult periods where the dinosaurs ruled. Doesn't it make sense 
that a small raptor-like species, maybe just as we have, you know, we have large elephants and whales, the blue whale, the largest animal ever to exist on Earth still today, that a very small, you might think of it as a Lilliputian-style reptile race developed with extremely high intelligence level and they may have existed for tens of millions of years beyond the dinosaurs by going and or underground subterranean like environment denizens you might say of the subterranean because of their intelligence they may have left the earth during the cataclysms that we believe occurred the plasma storms you know from our solar mass and then maybe returned or left messages before they left and Robert Ian wraps up the show with his latest with his latest must hear report goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap Visibility virtually unlimited over the precious metals sector for the sixth week running as investors sent the yellow metal soaring to the highest intraday level on growing uncertainty over the trade war and in anticipation of lower rates. At Friday's closing bell, the yellow metal remained at lofty levels, finishing up $14, about 1% at $14.13. Silver picked up $0.05, cents, treading water around $15.34. The XAU shares, though, picked up two more dollars, just skyrocketing 2% up to 84 now. Black gold picked up 2%, a dollar at nearly 59 at the cusp of 60, well off the lows. Palladium up $38 at nearly 15.42.5% for the week, while platinum picked up 24.53%, ending near 8.35 an ounce. Well, gold extended its rally, posting the biggest monthly advance in three years, the highest since 2013 in anticipation of looser monetary policy and, of course, the increased risk of geopolitical tensions. The big story, though, the Saturday meeting this weekend between President Donald Trump and Xi Jinping in Japan at the Group of 20 Summit in Osaka. Traders chose the sidelines on Friday to wait and see if the two nations will be able to resolve their concerns. On Thursday, reports indicated that China had set terms for negotiations, and the Wall Street Journal reported that Xi Jinping, including easier treatment of the controversial Huawei Technologies Company. Folks may remember there was uh, quite some concern over the CEO Bottom line on precious metals. Clearly, the new rate cut cycle, first anticipated about a year ago on GoldSeek Radio, is inflationary. And that's, of course, a big plus. Plus, Bank of America joined the ever-seeming-to-grow legion of supportive insiders in favor of the yellow metal, citing global macroeconomic trends. Meanwhile, holdings in gold-backed exchange-traded funds are also at the highest since 2013, like the price, according to Bloomberg.com. So, from a technical perspective, I expect momentum to calm down, though, that will offer a buying opportunity in the coming weeks. Moving on to the Wall Street Report, partly sunny skies hovered over the New York Stock Exchange as investors finished pricing in the news of a rate cut cycle beginning in about one month at the July 31st FOMC meeting. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow added 120 points, about 2.5% at 26,600. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 was off 9, about 2%, at 2942. And the NASDAQ was off about 25, ending at 8,006, holding above that key support level. The top headline moving the market. Investors preferred the sidelines to watch how this weekend's meeting goes in Japan. However, the Federal Reserve does have plans to lower interest rates, according to the Fed Fund's futures, around a 70% probability still of a rate cut in a month. And we're looking for another rate cut as soon as the October meeting. We're seeing just slightly higher than even odds of a rate cut compared with the other probabilities. Turning to interesting U.S. shares, our favorite CNBC shares guru, Mad Money's Jim Cramer. He thinks that big fund managers sell out their holdings in a certain area to increase cash for another less pricey or better value segment. He's looking for more defensive shares like Clorox and Procter & Gamble, what he calls recession stocks, or what I'd call recession-proof stocks. Right now, I think that Clorox represents the better technical of the two. U.S. shares bottom line. Well, the USA Today Greed to Fear Index remained at about the 50% level for the second week, and that's, again, equilibrium between the bulls and the bears. The technical position, I think, is a little more constructive now that some of the air was let out of the tires. 
I'd like to see prices consolidate here for a while, build up some steam for a fresh assault on new record highs in the coming months. More Gold Seek after this. Well, it's just great to have Bill Murphy back with us from the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, God of Chris Powell, giving us hope that things are going to turn around. You had some interesting thoughts on what might be unfolding here. Well, Chris, thanks for having me back. Well, gold's the best market, best acting market I've seen in uh, eight years, and the gold-silver ratio is going to 93. It's near historic all-time highs. J.P. Morgan's going berserk, trying to stop it, trying to give an indication to the rest of the gold cartel forces that they're going to take gold down, and uh, it's just what I call the silver signal. And I've never seen anything so good as the way gold is trading. It, it's, I'm having some. Everybody's having fun with that again. It's about time. The gold cartel running out of enough physical supply to meet demand. We've heard about the gold market being tight for two and a half years. It's meant nothing, and all of a sudden that tipping point was reached when they don't have enough physical gold to meet rising demand from all over the world, and it's very, very exciting. Do with the central banks not being able to find enough physical gold to meet the demand. I mean, that's the key, is that the bad guys, the, 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 uh, the gold cartel, as I've been calling it for 20 years, has run out of enough physical gold to meet demand, and they've been, that's why they've been able to keep gold under wraps for six years, and they've lost control. The breakout of the base is probably the most, one of the most bullish things I've ever seen in 40 years. Um, the last time I remember anything like it, wasn't it around 2001 that after the dot-com bust when investors said, hey, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about paper assets anymore. And for the next 12 consecutive years, not a single down year for the yellow metal. We're looking at something much more spectacular. Again, it's the most powerful base I've ever seen. The bad guys have run out of physical supply to meet demand. The gold price is going to explode by the end of the year, big time. I mean, mega. Plenty of precedent to think that we could see it. I mean, just look at U.S. equities have been on fire for years. Of course, the cryptos, which had a spectacular turnaround, you know, nearly a double on Bitcoin, at least a triple on Ethereum and or close to it. There's the possibility we could see something like that. You seem to think that there are some signs, technical signs, indicating that the smart money is returning to the market then? Absolutely, all over the world. I mean, you've heard about all these billionaires buying. They're doing it for a reason. As you just mentioned, and, and, and so well said, I mean, so what if gold rallies $200 tomorrow? It's nothing compared to what other assets have done. Nothing. My only concern is how is J.P. Morgan going to extricate themselves from the short side of the silver market? It's near an all, the open interest is near all-time highs. It's 100,000 contracts higher than when silver went to 50. They're doing everything they can to try to delay the rise of the precious metals. So we just have to watch for that to change in silver. Take a look at palladium. What a success story. I mean, I remember palladium around two, $300 an ounce a few years ago. Um, suddenly you see it north of 1500 higher than gold. Could you fathom such a thing? I mean, a six-fold or higher climb in the metal, the blink of an eye at, as far as long-term themes and trends in these financial markets. If we saw, let's say, a six-fold adjustment in the price of silver, that's triple digits, isn't it? That's what's coming. Uh, uh, once it breaks 21, it's on its way to 50 and then 100. And uh, it's been a long time coming and been uh, torture dealing with it for a lot of people like myself. But it's coming, and it's going to be spectacular when it goes. And, and we've heard the term slingshot used, and that's what's coming in silver once J.P. Morgan uh, gives up the ghost. Do you have any any interest at all in examining just what might occur, but let's just say a conservative fundamental valuation for AG? If uh, J.P. Morgan shorts were covered, Putin is accumulating 70-pound bars now in their central bank stockpile, not just gold. I mean, this is a real sea change, I think, in the mentality of central bankers towards the shiniest metal in the world and certainly most useful, other than maybe copper, the most useful, you might say, precious metal, certainly silver. So, I mean, now that the central bankers are having growing interest in not only the yellow metal, but AG, what if that starts a new trend throughout central bankers and institutions, not to mention deep-pocketed billionaire investors like the Hunt brothers circa 1980? 
I mean, it's been the 50, 40 years ago, 39, 40 years ago. I mean, uh, 100 is like no big deal. Feeling the past three to four weeks from people that have followed what I do is that, you know, that the physical market was drying up in gold, that they'd reached a tipping point where they didn't have enough supply to meet it, and that's proved to be true, uh, just beginning, and uh, that at some point, you know, silver is so cheap now with 93 to 1 gold-silver ratio, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and we got to get through this week, that there'll be a demand for silver like rarely seen, and all of a sudden, people that are taking physical supply of silver for granted are all going to rush for it, and it's not going to be there all of a sudden. It'll take a little time. But then it goes, and then, uh, again, the key is 21, and then uh, we're on our way. And uh, it's going to be very exciting and make up for the last eight years of uh, a horror show. There are several estimates now, UBS and others, calling for 15, even 1,600 yellow metal by the end of this year, early 2020. And, I mean, it makes sense, right, against the backdrop of the Fed Fund's futures, which are now calling for a rate cut as soon as next month, either July or September, by the policymakers, the FOMC meetings. Against a rate cut cycle, imagine if we adjusted just to the more traditional 15 to 1 gold to silver ratio, and we have a $1,500 gold price. That's $75, and it's on fire sale around 14 right now. That's a five-fold move. If we just went back to the normal, in-the-ground, in-terra-firma, gold-to-silver ratio that we find, you could make a case that investable silver in size, you know, might be almost as challenging to find as gold, not on an ounce-to-ounce basis, but large size. I'll be surprised if gold isn't at all-time highs by the end of the year, and, you know, and that silver's going to explode once we get through this J.P. Morgan orchestrated lockdown that we're in now, which is beyond pathetic, uh, but they're there doing it, and there's no other reason for silver to be not doing anything as gold uh, soars. So I think it's going to be a very exciting year for investors in the precious metal sector, and uh, we've got a lot of fun and money to be made. J.P. Morgan really does have a stockpile of silver, which now we're starting to realize that maybe much of that stockpile was being used to keep the physical under control. Perhaps, you know, there are some nefarious characters doing their best to maybe help manage the simmering inflation underneath the economic foundations here by sending out these messages that the gold rally and the gold shares rally isn't that significant. Because look, silver remains under control. We can still control the silver market. Chris, I mean, that's an understatement when you mention nefarious. I mean, that's what the gold silver markets are all about, and it's it's uh, coming to a, an end in terms of what they're able to do, and it's about time. It's taking forever, but we're finally at that point, and it's, that's what, what is, makes the gold-silver situation so appealing, and it's going to be a sensational time coming up in the years ahead. Do you have any interest in entertaining a fair value on silver? I mean, if we saw 2000 plus on gold, 20 to 1, we're looking at a rough $100 an ounce on silver. Are you looking for triple digits to become a benchmark? I'll tell you, if silver gets to 100, I'll be a happy camper, as will a lot of other people. That doesn't mean it won't go a lot much higher, and I won't still be looking at it, but uh, that's my goal think things over about what I'm doing in my life and everything else once silver gets to 100. Bill Murphy, please tell people more about La Metropole Cafe and Gata.org. Well, people can sign up for a two-week free trial at LaMetropoleCafe.com and my colleague of 20-plus years, Chris Powell, who secretary-treasurer of Gata, does an incredible job, and they can sign up to get on his list for free. And uh, eventually, at some point, people are going to realize what a big deal that the gold price suppression scheme has been and when it when it all blows up it'll be something else in the meantime we fight the good fight all right well thank you so much bill murphy thank you chris anytime Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. 
Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, many jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. With sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember, OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. It's just a pleasure to welcome back the founder and publisher of online resource, WolfStreet.com. Welcome back, Wolf Richter. Thanks for having me back, Chris perusing some of your must-read articles on Wolf Street, you're concerned, as are many folks, about this echo bubble in the housing sector. And I'd like your thoughts on the uh, your latest article, one of them, in the past few days. The most splendid housing bubble in America, first year-over-year drop. Tell us more, please. So we've had, since 2012, essentially, year after year after year of uh, house price increases, in the major metro areas in the United States. Now, there are some exceptions, uh, Detroit and Cleveland. And, you know, some cities, not every, not every housing market participates in this, but uh, among the biggest ones, they, they essentially did. And, and so this time around, so we're talking about the, the Case-Shiller data here, and which compares uh, home sales sales of the same house over time. So it's different than median prices and average prices. It's, uh, it, it's slower moving. It indicates things later than other metrics, and it, it's uh, not as volatile. So what you see here is uh, it's a little bit behind the curve, but it, it tends to be smooth and a little bit more accurate than, than, than some of the ups and downs we see elsewhere. And so what we have now seen is that we, in New York City, and or in, in the New York Metro and in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, that condo prices have declined for the first time on a year-over-year basis in this metric. Now we have seen that before in median prices, but now it's showing up in the Cashiller. 
And, uh, you know, the Bay Area is probably one of the most overpriced markets in the country and uh, the New York metro, particularly Manhattan and, and some of the other boroughs, are uh, in the same basket. These are indications that uh, we're bumping into a ceiling here. And, and, you know, salaries are really high in the San Francisco Bay Area for people who participate in the and the tech bubble here, and for people who uh, are in finance, you know, they're they're not really high for for other employees, but they're, you know, they're fairly high for these uh, for for the tech uh, industry. And so there's always this thing that yeah, it's not a bubble because people can't afford them. You know, people can't afford to pay one and a half million dollars for a starter shack or for a uh, in a two bedroom condo somewhere, and. Uh, that is running out of steam. There's a real, there's a ceiling we're bumping into now, and and we've seen this, you know, and and this ceiling hasn't, you know, we, we the, the Nasdaq hasn't crashed. Uh, that, that's usually an indication that things go to heck in the Bay Area is when the Nasdaq crashes, but that really hasn't happened yet. So what we're seeing is just a a natural limit. There, you know, it, the market is running out of people who are willing and able to pay one and a half million dollars for uh, a two-bedroom condo, you know, or $1 million for a one-bedroom condo. There, you know, if you make that kind of money, uh, <laughs> you want to live in something nice and big, and, and you know, in the Bay Area, you can't get that anymore. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a big indication. In other markets, that really hasn't happened yet. Uh, yeah, Seattle now is flat. Uh, year over year, so Seattle house prices are flat. Now, Seattle went through a gigantic house price surge over the last couple, uh, three years or four years, and uh, so that has run out of steam. In uh, some of the other markets, the increases are much smaller. We're looking at one or two percent, three percent increases on a year-over-year basis. Uh, so, it uh, you know, in the most expensive markets, we're now running into some kind of natural ceiling, unrelated to the stock market and unrelated to employment. Uh, yeah, the, the those people or companies are surging for for people in the Bay Area. It's hard to hire people here. You have to pay a lot of money. So this is not an economic downturn that's causing this. It's just it's just bumping into a price ceiling. Yeah, they've they've risen prices so so much that it's it just it just doesn't move forward anymore. And uh, so now, obviously, you know, we're waiting for a uh, turnaround in the economy. Uh, that I don't really see that happening right now. Uh, the economy here is really strong. It's strong in Seattle. You know, it's strong in New York. Uh, so it it it's not an an indication of the economy turning south here, but it is an indication of an overpriced market that that's hit the ceiling. What they do so well at Wolf Street is illustrate the magnitude of the the regional aspect of the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. I'd like to add these into a slideshow, so be sure and check out the video that accompanies. Some of these areas, they haven't eclipsed even their previous Great Recession bubble, you know, 2006 to 2007 peaks. Much of Tampa, much of the South, Washington, maybe you could comment or speak to what you see happening here on the East. Yeah, so picked up Miami. So let's let's throw in Las Vegas and Phoenix also, and that they're kind of in the same basket. So these were housing markets that went completely bonkers during a housing bubble one. So I I call it housing bubble one because it's the first one in this century, and now we're in housing bubble two. So the second one in the century. There have been prior housing bubbles, but I'm I'm just counting in the century. And uh, for example, in Miami, uh, home prices between 2000 and 2007 uh, almost quadrupled. So when you think about that, you know, you bought a $100,000 condo in 2000, and in 2007, uh, it was, or in 2006, yeah, it was worth 400000 So uh, it's, when you look at the chart, and you'll, you'll see that in the video that you're putting together there, Chris. And after that, in about, the same at about the same rate, prices collapsed, and they collapsed uh, all the way down to 2002 level. So they they gave up almost all the gains. So that hundred thousand dollar condo you bought in 2000 
became $400,000 and then returned to about (laughs) $115,000. So, you know, people borrowed money on these high valuations and then walked from their properties and the banks ended up with it. And so this was a huge, gigantic housing bubble. It was completely nuts. Um, There's no other word to describe this. So it collapsed uh, as it should have. And so now uh, going back up. You know, but it's going up at a slower rate. It's still a very steep rate. And in Miami, we're just 13% below the peak of the crazy bubble of uh, that ended in 2006. And so when you look at the chart, you see that it has surged at an incredible rate. Now, prices have, uh, have essentially uh, more than doubled in, in, uh, in the six years. But it is not quite as steep of a rate as it was before, and it's not quite back yet to the same level of where it had been, but it's already way overpriced. So, I mean, this is the thing about these housing bubbles. Yeah, they didn't, they, they haven't quite gotten back to the level where they were in Miami, in Las Vegas, in Tampa, and in Phoenix, but those housing bubbles that they had in 2006 were just so outrageous to go try to go back there, and that's where they're headed. You know? So right now, they're still a little bit off, but, uh, and obviously, you know, we've had time passing between 2006, so people are making more money. Uh, there's been some inflation. Uh, so getting back to the same level doesn't mean it's just, but it's just slightly lower than we had in 2006. Now, you just can't compare these three cities with any other market in, in the United States. Just uh, those were the the epicenters of the housing bubble and the epicenters of the housing bust. So now they're they're just trying to, to struggle to get back up there. And, and when you look at the charts, and please invent them, and when you look at the charts, it's just a head-scratcher. This whole thing just visually makes you think, do this? And yeah, they're, they're getting there again. So we're on the way. I would like you to speak to, if you don't mind, your Denver house price or the Case-Shiller home price index chart. I mean, we're looking at a chart here that virtually experienced no parabolic growth during the early 2000s and has gone vertical, according to your analysis. How is this an anomaly and, and how does it maybe tie in against the backdrop of housing bubble or North American housing bubble? Denver is one of the cities that skipped housing bubble one. Yeah, and, uh, and Dallas is another one of those. There were, there were several there were home prices rose, but they didn't skyrocket. And and in Denver over the six years or the six years between two thousand and, and two thousand six, home prices increased roughly forty percent. So there's still a pretty good chunk of increases, you know. It's not like they didn't have any kind of uh, uh, price surge, but compared to what they've had since and so prices dropped uh, for a few years after 2006, and but didn't collapse. And then, uh, yeah, what they've had since then is just incredible. That every year, year after year, they've had phenomenal price surges. And the dynamics have changed in Denver. You know, Denver has become a really hot place to be. And I mean, when you go to Denver, you realize, you know, it's at the edge of the Rocky Mountains. Not like they're out of space. You know, the the, the one end of the uh, of Denver is, is going into the plains, and yeah, the the next biggest city going east is is maybe Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, so there's lots of space there to go. And of course, going west, you're you're heading into the Rockies, and so there's some limits there. But it's a beautiful spot. You know, the climate is great. It's close to skiing. It's got a lot of stuff going for itself. Uh, but it's not like they're out of space to build. In some cities, you can say that. In San Francisco, you can say, well, it's surrounded on three sides by water, and you can't build anymore even though that's not accurate either because there are many areas in San Francisco that need to be redeveloped, such as the uh, Hunter Point shipyard, naval shipyard area that's now uh, essentially being uh, being redeveloped. But in, in Denver, you know, you have all this space. So why does, why does a uh, market surge to this extent? And uh, that remains a mystery. You know, there, it's, it's just what a housing bubble looks like. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. Uh, people make lots of money during this, and it goes on until it doesn't. And then it stops, and, you know, things turn around. Keeping with your housing bubble theme there, is there a chance that this is still primarily a regional bubble, that it hasn't yet become systemic? And therefore, we might see other areas participate, like Denver, like Seattle, before we see 
another 2008-2009 style meltdown? Yeah, that's an excellent question because normally we don't get national housing bubbles and national house price crashes. We get them locally. And then you don't notice them uh, nationally because they kind of average out. So on a national basis, we don't normally get all housing markets go up together and then all of them crash together like, like they did in 2000, in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, I've lived through the housing bubble and housing bust in Tulsa, Oklahoma during the oil boom and oil bust. And in Texas too, you know, you, they were local and home prices there were completely disconnected from home prices in other parts of the country. And uh, elsewhere, you didn't even notice the drama that was going on in Oklahoma and Texas. Lots of banks failing because of real estate uh, borrowers defaulting on the loans. You know, I mean, it was a complete fiasco locally, but nationally, it didn't even hardly make any ripples. So that's the normal condition. Normally, we have local markets that go into a bubble and, and that then collapse, and there's local ramifications, and they don't make a lot of difference on a national basis. What we had in 2006, 2007 was a kind of a national bubble that and then kind of collapsed together. And it's different. I mean, some housing markets back then turned around in 2005. Others in 2006. San Francisco didn't turn around until late 2007. I mean, throughout 2007, we thought San Francisco, the, 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 the thing was, San Francisco's different. Home prices will never fall in San Francisco. You know, they can't. And as all heck was breaking loose nationally, home prices were still rising in San Francisco. And then November 2007 hit, and suddenly it was over and prices crashed. So that, that was an unusual situation to see so many housing markets over a fairly short period in time uh, turn south together. And right now, this is not quite the case. We have some of the biggest ones that I picture in this particular article. Yeah, but then today I'm going to publish the, the counter article to this. This is the housing bubbles that the former housing bubbles or non-housing bubbles, you know, that, that haven't made it, and that includes Detroit and Cleveland and others, where there was no housing bubble one and there is no housing bubble two, and, and things are pretty depressed in the real estate market, even though Detroit's now coming up a little bit. So there, and at this point, I don't see a real threat nationally like we did last time. The real threat, I think, is locally. And, and that's a good thing, you know, because we're, this stuff is funded by, by national institutions. And so if a local housing market blows up on them, uh, it's not such a big deal. And, and you know, and the state might not step in. I mean, if it's just San Francisco, Bay Area, and, and a couple other markets that turn south, but nationally, you know, it's kind of flat. Yeah. I don't think there will be a big reaction from the Fed or from, from anybody else, really. I mean, that's just a risk of doing business. You know, and that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at. I don't see a national bubble. I see a number of local bubbles, and I see a number of markets where the housing market is really in bad shape right now. I'm so glad to hear you say this because it, it makes me less concerned, quite as bubbly as some folks are indicating. And I, I love the Dallas area, too. Uh, Fort Worth. Move on to U.S. equities. We've had pundits and others just wrong the entire way. The, the roads are lined with the carcasses of the bears. That's a good way of putting it. And the equities are, you know, are overpriced. That doesn't mean that they will crash. Now, they've come down very hard last year and to the point where the Fed panicked. And then the Fed unleashed a torrent of verbiage that the markets interpreted as being a U-turn even though the Fed hasn't done anything, hasn't cut rates yet, and, and, uh, and it's still doing its quantitative tightening, even though it's slowing it down. So the markets have recovered from the sell-off last year around the all-time highs, again, meaning back where they were in, in October uh, last year. And, you know, this is something that... Uh, that that will just continue to, to baffle people. Uh, but there's a, a large amount of money uh, that supports this. And, this uh, and a part of this large amount of money is from corporations buying back their own shares. And I just uh, uh, put some data up today on this, you know, with Apple in the first quarter buying back $23 billion worth of its own shares, uh, $208 billion in total for all S&P 500 companies in the, in the first quarter. You know, we had a record $800 billion in share buybacks over the last 12 months. 
Uh, I mean, this, this is a lot of money flowing into the stock market. And, and what happens when a company buys back its own shares, it, it, yeah, it depletes, it, it uses its cash, and uh, it, some of them may borrow money to do that. Uh, so the cash goes to the sellers. Uh, the company gets the shares. The shares get canceled, so the company ends up with nothing. And uh, shareholder equity actually on the balance sheet drops by that amount. And so it's a hollowing out of the company, in essence, and uh, and yet it, it provides an enormous support uh, for the stock market. And when uh, in the fourth quarter last year, when you know when stock markets really hit the skits and, and went down uh, maniacally, uh, corporations bought back a record amount of shares, and uh, which slowed down the sell-off. And, uh, um, and and probably stopped it. Um, so this has been, I mean, it's getting very big now. The numbers are huge, but this has been the same principle over the past, uh, since, you know, since the crash, essentially. Uh, and now, you know, the, the, we've changed the tax law so companies can, uh, quote-unquote, repatriate the profits they have uh, socked away at, at um, uh, their overseas mailbox entities. And they can use that money now uh, on the preferential tax treatments to buy back their own shares, and they're doing it in, in just huge numbers. Uh, so this this gives support to the stock market, and it inflates. Uh, it's, it's financial engineering, yeah, but it it inflates uh, stock prices in in a number of ways. And I mean, you can be a bear about the fundamentals, and you should be. I mean, the fundamentals are terrible, and it's overpriced. It's it's overvalued, and. And, but as long as these companies can continue to spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year buying back their own shares, yeah, there is support for the market. Uh, now, this is not last, it's not going to last forever because there's this money that, uh, uh, that, uh, the quote unquote repatriating, uh, is limited, you know, and they're drawing it down. And, uh, so that, that support from that direction will not last forever. Uh, also, when credit cycles turn, borrowing gets a lot more difficult, and then companies can no longer borrow to buy back their own shares. And so that will, will dry up. So there's this, this is a very cyclical activity. If you look back at it, you know, there's peaks, uh, huge peaks and big troughs, and the troughs happen during crashes when companies suddenly cannot buy back their own shares anymore, and then the, the support falls out from under the market. Uh, and... You know, so this is something that that that, that that's really important to watch. Uh, you know, as long as companies can buy back close to a trillion dollars worth of their own shares every year, uh, and as long, yeah, you know, that, that gives a huge amount of support to the market. And as long as uh, there's specialty funds set up, and that's a, a large amount of money too, that uh, jump in every time there's a sell-off and yeah, you know, private equity firms are into this. Hedge funds are into this. They're raising funds for these kinds of sell-offs now. Yeah, you know, you'll have buyers. You'll have big institutional buyers jumping in. So I, I don't think that uh, we're going to see the stock market skyrocket because it's really, it's really kind of in trouble. But we also won't see a huge crash because there's all the support lining up underneath it, and uh, it's yeah, it's been a, it's been very tough. Uh, if if you try to to invest based on fundamentals, you know this is <laughs> the fundamentals is really a, a money losing game. It has been a money losing game of, over the last ten years. Uh, it's been a momentum game, a game and a story game. And uh, but but it's yeah now it's being supported by buybacks and and when there's a crash occurring or, or a sharp sell off, it's supported by uh, by funds that jump into this. So, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to be excited about this market. I think you really smacked the cover off the hardball because every money manager, every portfolio manager, every institution, and every investor out there, you know, they're taught from day one, right, in B school, you've got to have that portfolio of shares and bonds. And so that sweet mutual fund money continues to flow. And as you point out in your article again today, what if this runs out of juice, the biggest share buybacks, when you give five companies with $55 billion in buybacks. Folks, we're going to include these share buybacks in so you can, again, be sure and get that slideshow off YouTube. 
fun few weeks here in the precious metal sector. That's our bread and butter. Any positive thoughts maybe on the XAU shares or the metals in general? I mean, gold's been, been doing really well, I mean, obviously. And, but I have a concern. You know, my, uh, my last year, uh, my strategy for gold was as a hedge against uh, a stock price and a bond sell-off. And, and that works, you know. So when you have stocks and bonds selling off and gold doesn't go anywhere or goes up a little bit as it did last year, you know, then, then your, your, your hedge works. Um, now, all of this stuff has been going up together. So my theory about gold as being a hedge against the sell-off in stocks and bonds uh, is sort of being undercut right now. And I would like to see when, when stocks surge like this and bonds surge like this and treasury surge like this and everything goes up, you know, I would like to see gold go down. So that my theory is confirmed that when everything else goes, the gold will be stable or go up. And so now my theory is being shot to pieces. And uh, I'm a little bit concerned about that. But, uh, but it, it certainly has been fun in the gold sector. It's always a good ballast. I know you're a sailor from time to time. And, I mean, it really does kind of keep an even keel in the portfolio. It's that, you know, maybe the proverbial free lunch. We never really get, but we hear so much about Wolf Richter. A lot to digest today. Do your portfolio a favor and bookmark A Course Gold Seek and WolfStreet.com. Wolf Richter, please return. Thank you, Chris. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. Goldseek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. With sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology vault chain gold and silver are 100 redeemable through one gold for physical precious metals delivered to customers doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs as a special offer and for a limited time only one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums one gold.com is secure and accessible 24 7 on any device offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. This is Robert Ian with Goldseek.com Radio. An article which originally appeared in The Sun this week 
and was subsequently picked up by a number of news organizations, was headlined, NASA headed towards giant golden asteroid that could make everyone on Earth a billionaire. Needless to say, a headline like that, written in the tradition of those fine tabloids one finds in the checkout line at the grocery stores, caught my attention and demanded further reading. Apparently, NASA has located a nearby asteroid called Psyche 16, which is nestled between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter and is made of solid metal, including gold, platinum, iron, and nickel. I'm not sure how this calculation was made or what it was based on. The article did not specify but it's claimed that in total the various metals this asteroid is made of are worth 10,000 quadrillion dollars. You heard that correctly. 10,000 quadrillion dollars. The article speculates that if brought back to Earth, it would destroy commodity prices and cause the world's economy worth $75.5 trillion, to collapse. In case this sounds like science fiction, and the possibility of mining wealth from planets and asteroids sounds like a forgotten episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, I would remind you that in 2015, President Obama legalized the private ownership of asteroids. One article from late 2015 was headlined, Asteroid Mining Made Legal After Barack Obama Gives U.S. Citizens the Right to Own Parts of Celestial Bodies. It went on to say, The move marks a major change in space law, which has treated space as something that belongs to everyone on Earth. U.S. citizens are now able to obtain their own asteroids and mine resources out of them and will be able to own the materials they find there. Until now, space has largely been treated as publicly owned, meaning that nobody could claim commercial ownership of anything that was out there. If you doubt this, you can easily do your own research and will readily find a rapidly emerging cottage industry of venture capital funds designated specifically for space, along with technology companies that focus on specific aspects of space travel and development of colonies on other worlds. That is happening, and is worthy of much more discussion than we have time for today. So let's just ask some initial questions about what a sudden influx of massive quantities of gold, platinum, and other metals would mean. Would an asteroid-based gold strike provide enough physical gold to back the gargantuan quantities of paper gold and unbacked fiat currencies that have been issued? Could this volume of gold be used to somehow back the quadrillions of dollars of derivatives that hide backstage and threaten the totality of the global financial system each day? Is the mere suggestion of this kind of tangible wealth that lies just outside our present reach incentive enough for politicians to push forward and believe they can provide universal basic income, Medicare for all, possibly a new car or home, and whatever other style of giveaways they can imagine in the here and now, based on the full faith and confidence that the resources on those asteroids will be obtained and utilized by citizens of Earth? What if we actually are able to begin retrieving those resources, only to find that perhaps citizens from some other planet or world or dimension have 
already staked claim to those very assets. The modern incarnation of Star Wars may begin unfolding before our very eyes with the militarization of space. Or could the very existence and possible retrieval of such vast quantities of wealth, at least by our present standards, be used to create something I speculated about on this broadcast years ago, and that is the introduction of a psychological gold standard? In other words, the gold is there. Here are the pictures. Some samples have been brought back. We've laid claim to it. But you can't touch it or possess it. Nevertheless, everything you do in the here and now will be backed by this future gold. Maybe this becomes the new definition of deep storage gold as it morphs into off-world gold. There are many more questions to discuss on this highly speculative and evolving subject. With the advent of the Space Force and planned trips to the Moon and Mars, the integration of finance and space will become the new frontier. Until such speculation crystallizes, I personally will adhere to the premise that if I don't hold it, I don't own it. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. GoldSeek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. GoldSeek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24 karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion 
by 2021. Many jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, many jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. With sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.